Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. One of the things that I love about Scripture is its honesty. I don't think anyone would ever accuse the authors of Scripture of trying to sugarcoat the truth. But rather, because God is truth, they are honest about when a hero fails, um, when the people we look up to there make bad choices, even when and how the people of God fall away. In fact, I would say this is one of the ways that we know that the scriptures can be trusted. They're so confident that God is going to use the truth for good that they just put it all out there in its raw glory. And they teach us that God is bigger than even our failures. Which is why when we read this today, we can already hear that something crazy is about to happen. So beginning in chapter 4, the author of Judges wrote this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Haguyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, so there's a lot of backstory here. But let me just kind of give you the highlights. After Moses had led Israel out of Egypt, then through the wilderness, they get to the Jordan River. And then Joshua takes over, and he led the people on a conquest of the land that God had given them, the, called, the land called Canaan. Now, you can read the book of Exodus and Joshua and see all the setbacks and the different things that happened and, uh, while they did this. But suffice it to say that they've seen some stuff, and God has brought them through that stuff. So they settle in Canaan. But the thing is, they didn't really manage to settle all of Canaan because they didn't follow God's instructions to the letter. So having broken their covenant with God already, God then takes this as a teaching moment. See, back in chapter 2, we read this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies for as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. So this is the setting in which we find ourselves. The previous judge, Ehud, has passed away, and the people again begin to lapse into the evil ways of the nations around them. Before this, it had been the Elamites and the Moabites and then the Philistines who had been nations around Israel who had been allowed to oppress them. But now... It's actually the very people of the land that God had given them, the people of Canaan, the ones who rise up. In particular, there's this warlord Jabin, or really his, his general Sisera, who had come up with something new. We're at the end of the Bronze Age here, and so Jabin's metalsmiths had figured out how to make iron chariots. These 900 chariots the scripture describes would make quick work of the untrained foot soldiers of Israel. 
We're talking farmers and nomads here. The Israelis were not a standing army. So Israel never rose up. But more than 20 years passed before they cry out to God in their oppression. So then God calls Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Have you ever seen the movie Frozen? This is kind of like that coronation scene in the beginning where Elsa's been made queen of Arendelle and nobody really blinks an eye. She's just queen and that's it. This is kind of like that. Deborah was the judge called by God for Israel at that time. That she's a woman never comes up. We meet her sitting under a palm tree, mediating disputes, reminiscent of Moses in Exodus chapter 18 as he presided over the people. And by the way, this was totally normal in Israel. While the surrounding nations tended to consider women property, it was not uncommon to find women especially as prophets. Ever heard of Anna or Hulda or Miriam or the daughters of Philip? You see, a prophet in Israel is called by God and by God alone. And it seems that God was not particularly picky about the gender of the leaders he calls. In case you were wondering. Anyway, one day God gives Deborah a message. And so she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. God has raised up a judge. And now God has put into motion the plan by which he is going to rescue Israel from her oppressors. Barak of the tribe of Naphtali was general in Israel, and Deborah tells him to call 10,000 troops. Now this sounds like a lot of men, but remember the chariots? 10,000 men with pitchforks, and whatever they happen to have laying around on their farms, that's not much of a blip on the radar for 900 iron chariots with hardened, trained, armored soldiers. If the battle was to happen on the plain at the foot of Mount Tabor, then they need a miracle because it was ideal ground for chariots to just plow through the Israelite troops. And Barak knows it. So Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now this is the point where we need to read carefully and not make any assumptions based on our own experience. Deborah was a prophet. Her job was to tell the truth. Her name actually means bee, as in her words can sometimes sting like a bee. And in this case, it's actually true. She has to bluntly tell Barak that if things are going to go according to God's plan, which she says is the course you are taking, that's God's plan, he doesn't get the honor of the decisive blow. That honor was when the general of the victorious army killed the general of the losing army. But Deborah says that if we are to take God's plan, you don't get to have that. Now, on top of that, Barak, who is Israel's military leader, knows that they are in a bad spot for a battle. They have no chance of winning this thing on their own. See, military battles at this time also had a spiritual element to them. This is a very tribal society. And when an army went to war with another army, it was also like one god was going to war with the other god of the opposing army. 
and whichever army won was an indicator of which god was actually the superior one. And yet Deborah, the spiritual leader of Israel, has been told by God to go to battle. So all that to say, Barak is not showing weakness or timidity here in his response to Deborah. Instead, Barak is taking a huge leap of faith. Barak, the military leader, defers to Deborah, the spiritual leader, because while there is not really a good military solution, there is a good spiritual one. He's saying, Deborah, if God told you we're going to go, you're in charge. Let's do this thing God's way. See, good leaders do that. They are humble enough to know when they need to follow someone else rather than being in charge themselves. Continuing. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, with 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Haguyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot. So the battle is almost over. It's almost won. Sisera, the commander, got away, but against all odds, the war machine of the Canaanites is just gone. Now, this miraculous victory actually has an explanation, which we can find out in chapter 5, which is actually an epic poem describing everything that happened, which I encourage you to read about 10 times just to let the poetry of it sink in. It turns out at the moment the troops are coming down Mount Tabor to attack the Canaanites, there's a sudden thundering lightning storm soaking the ground around the chariots, bogging them down in the mud. It says the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In an instant, 900 tanks become 900 foot soldiers weighed down by heavy armor. And Israel's 10,000 men suddenly have the advantage. The author actually calls the storm the sword in God's hand. God has gone before Israel and handed them the victory over their oppressors. Now, remember how I said the death of the commander is what really brings the victory? And then remember how Deborah said that the victory would be given over the hands of a woman? Well, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Sisera, the Canaanite general, flees into the tent of an ally, but is met by his ally's wife, Jael. She gives him food, and then she promises to stand watch and lulls him to sleep. But instead of standing watch, she ends his life in a kind of Game of Thrones sort of way. Now, I'd love to spend more time on Jael's story, but priorities. The chapter ends with this. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. 
And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So, we have come to the last of the gifts that Paul lists in Romans chapter 12. We've heard about the prophet and the servant, the teacher, the encourager, the equipper, and the compassionate. God gifts the people of his church with diverse skills and perspective because we are better off that way. It's the best way to accomplish his mission. But the last list, the gift on the list, we went a little bit out of order. It's actually second to last. But the the, the last one we're going to address is the gift of leadership. Now, the story of Deborah is about not one, but actually two leaders of Israel. And I think the first thing that we need to see here is that both of them are actually followers. Remember, we're talking about a spiritual gift here. This is a gift given by God to lead. And so one who is a spiritually gifted leader knows that they receive any and all authority that they have by God. And as such, they must be a follower of God before they get to lead. See, Deborah received the message from God that they were to take on the seemingly impossible task of taking on a technologically superior bully. Barak is paying attention to the odds, and he realizes that only God can bring the victory here, and then defers to the spiritual leader of Israel, which is Deborah. Both submit to God's authority in their separate but related realms of leadership, and because of this, Israel won the day. See, they know who's really in charge. Now, that brings us to Ephesians 4, which we heard Yemi read earlier. Thank you, Yemi. The Greek word for leader is proestomy, which means to stand before, to preside. Deborah was the spiritual leader of Israel, and she's a prophetess. Barak was a military leader. Both led people. But even in this short amount of scripture, I don't think any of us could argue that their gifts really looked the same. They stood before or they presided in different ways. We meet Deborah presiding under a palm tree, judging for Israel. And we meet Barak at the head of troops, which is to say that God has given different kinds of leadership gifts. Ephesians 4 lists, lists five of them. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher. And each one of them goes about leading a little bit differently. But here's the key. Even though there are all these different kinds of leaders, they all have one goal, to equip the people of God for works of service, which is to say, to help the people of God be who we were meant to be and then do the things we were meant to do. I also think we see this. Spiritually gifted leaders are both humble and truthful. They don't shy away from the reality of the world in front of them, but they take it for what it is and work from there. So I went to the dentist this week um, to get my teeth cleaned, which was a little weird during a pandemic. I've never really liked going, but now that I'm getting towards 40, it's actually getting even harder because it's starting to be kind of like taking my car to the mechanic. They always find something that needs fixing. And of course, this time I left with an appointment in two weeks to get a filling done. Now, I don't want to get a filling. Fillings hurt. They're uncomfortable. So, you know, maybe I should just stop going. Because obviously then I would never find out about the problem. And I could feel good knowing, like, everything's fine. Or I could ignore my dentist um, and say, sure, you went to medical school for like a decade. But I know my own mouth. I don't need a filling. 
or I could accept the world for what it is, um, trust the expert, and then work through the discomfort of what needs to be done and get the filling. That's the plan. Now imagine if Barack had said something like, well, if we stopped counting the iron chariots, there wouldn't be as many of them. Or maybe, yeah, they're probably only wooden chariots. But that's not, like, actually helpful. As a leader, however hard the situation was to see, he had the humility to acknowledge the truth of what it was. He himself was powerless in the face of those odds. And then he looked towards God with eyes of faith to ask what God would have him do to overcome those odds on behalf of the people that he had been asked to serve. See, spirit-filled leaders are not for themselves. They're not leaders because they want to command others. They're not leaders because they want fame and fortune or the good life. They are leaders because serving people is what God has chosen them for at this time and this place for this purpose. See, the problem that got us into this whole mess in the first place was that Israel kept breaking their covenant with God by taking up the idols of the land, turning away from God, and turning towards the other religions around them. We find in Judges 3 that they would have even intermarried into the corrupt nations of the region. Now, at first, I could not for the life of me figure out why any of those religions would be appealing. Because we're talking about some seriously dark stuff here child sacrifice and prostitution and fear-mongering. In fact, the Canaanite religion comes up repeatedly throughout the rest of the Old Testament, notably the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which is referred elsewhere by its idol, the Asherah pole. Israel pays for this disobedience over and over again, and an ongoing struggle with temptation repeatedly throughout their history. But why? Why this temptation? Well, it turns out that Jabin and Sisera are not just Canaanites. They are Canaanite. They grew up in Canaan. But it turns out that the entire land of Canaan is actually a part of the Egyptian empire at this time. And the job of King Jabin and of the general Sisera and others like them was to acquire slave labor for the pharaohs. Do you see the problem here? Israel still has not let God free them from Egypt. It's been multiple generations since they left Egypt, and they are still finding ways to let themselves be enslaved by a foreign power and foreign gods. But unlike the past, now they have their promised land, more or less. I mean, it's not like they got everything that they wanted, but the familiarity of old Egypt still has a hold on them, like they want to have the best of both worlds. And it bites them every single time. And God has to let them hurt for 20 years before they realize that no, life was actually better when they followed God. And then he sends a judge and then a general to once again liberate them. See, good leaders, spirit-called leaders, are sent to disrupt the status quo. Leaders lead. God doesn't need to call these leaders to manage the way things already are. God doesn't want to keep things like they've always been because how they've always been isn't good. The world has changed around them, and now they're in danger again. From foreign powers, yes, but from their own temptations and their own inability to move forward with what they've been taught is best. 
Leaders are not guardians of the way that we like things. Leaders are catalysts who spur us further, higher, deeper, beyond our comfort zones into God's dreams for us. Now, I don't know about you, but the challenges of this pandemic or the challenge of the vitriol that I've seen between people on social media over politics or masks, the tedium of shelter-in-place orders, the anger that I feel over the continuing racism and its consequences in our nation, missing leading worship with my amazing team of artists, all of this and more has made me anxious. And so I've started to yearn for comfort, for familiar things, even some that just really aren't that good for me. When I get some time, I'll find myself watching old TV shows that I know that I like. They have a story that makes me feel good, which is fine as long as I don't use it to ignore my responsibilities. I find myself wandering into the kitchen for more cookies, which it turns out add up over time. I sometimes find myself scrolling endlessly on social media at the expense of being present with my family. Having our status quo disrupted the way it has been for more than six months now is hard. So many of us turn towards things other than Jesus for our hope. Some turn to food or drugs or sex or social media. Some turn to denial like, oh, no, this isn't really happening. Some turn to anger or to bullying. Some turn to politics or to politicians. Anything to numb the pain. But church, the way out is not backward. We can't go back to pre-pandemic days anymore that Israel could actually return to Egypt. The election is still going to happen. The pandemic has happened. The effects of climate change are still a thing. If we are honest with ourselves, like it or not, this is the world we live in now. But church, we must not fix our eyes on those things that should not hold our allegiance to numb or distract ourselves. We must not fix our eyes on shallow comfort or on a platform or on the past or on a flag because the only way that we move on is to move through. And to move through is to, as the author of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on Jesus, to let Jesus lead us forward. Yes, it will be uncomfortable. Yes, we will have to confront our idols and our hypocrisy. And yes, we will have to let go of things that are holding us back that we really don't want to let go of. Yes, it will be hard. Church, we must cry out to God today if we want deliverance. Because the point of the book of Judges, the point of the story of Barak and Deborah, is that only God saves. Paul said it this way. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray today for your deliverance. Much weighs on us these days, Lord. These are turbulent times, and it feels like we live in a weary land. We cry out for your mercy, for your saving 
hands to hold onto us. Rescue us, O God. Do not let us stumble. Help us fix our eyes on you and on you alone. May our trust, may our allegiance be in you and in your kingdom. Lead us onward, O Lord, in your love and in your grace and in your power. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.